Hello and welcome to the Bankers podcast series, Banking in Transition, looking at how the global banking industry is adapting to the new normal as the world begins to recover from the global pandemic. I'm Joy McKnight, editor of The Banker, and my guests this week are True Eras co-founder and CEO Will Uppington and Shamik Kundu, head of financial services and senior strategy officer. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks for having us. Excellent. Great to be here. Uh, and Will, I'm going to uh, ask you to explain a little bit about True Era and then what you do. So True Era is an AI quality software company. We help companies explain, analyze, and monitor the quality of the machine learning models or AI. And it's based on uh, some unique cutting edge AI explainability and quality technology that our team developed at Carnegie Mellon in the United States over the last seven years. Um, and so we are addressing one of the big, biggest problems that uh, enterprises and banks face when they're developing AI, which is what we call the AI quality problem. Uh, it's a pretty big problem because 85% of AI projects actually fail to deliver on their objectives in some way. And we help people avoid these failures in three ways. So first, we help them build higher quality uh, AI models um, better and faster in the first place. With one of our customers, for example, we identified a previously unknown problem in an auto insurance risk model, which would have led to really poor real world performance and which their current way of evaluating the models did not pick up. And so we enabled them to understand its root cause and fix it. Second, we help customers um, address evolving AI regulations and model risk management requirements. So for example, we are helping Standard Charter create and adopt a responsible AI and regulatory framework across first line and second line uh, model risk management teams. And third, we help companies, once they move their models or AI into production, monitor and maintain the quality uh, of that AI. So for example, one of our banking customers' credit card models started to behave quite differently after COVID hit. Uh, as we all recognize, there were massive changes in different spending, happen, spending patterns that were previously uh, assumed within the model. And so we identified those changes we enabled them to adjust that model to, to maintain that quality even after a COVID hit. Excellent. And Shamik, I was going to say, you have had a long career within the banking industry. So what made you decide to join True Era at this time? So um, I, I spent the last seven years of my banking career as, uh, as Group Chief Data Officer at Standard Chartered. Um, and uh, in, in the course of that work, the areas of kind of trust in, in data and, and algorithms uh, increasingly became more and more important. Uh, early on in my career, we had a brush with the regulatory situation where an, an, an unreliable algorithm ended up causing a lot of uh, concern all around. It wasn't machine learning or AI, but all the same, that, that, that was uh, a, a significant area of interest for me. Um, I guess from there, it went to a lot of regulatory interest. Uh, I, I had the opportunity to uh, co-authored co the first ever AI-related regulatory guidelines in financial services, which was from the Monetary Authority of Singapore back in 2018. Also sit on the Bank of England's AI public-private forum on the same topic. And at some stage, I realized, well, this is all great, thinking about policies, standards. This is what we banks do very well. But ultimately, this particular problem is not going to be solved purely through good intent or through nice policies. Uh, we're going to need two big things. One, we're going to need to vastly increase the AI quotient or more broadly the data and analytics quotient across the banking industry so that everybody 
knows enough to ask the right questions as, as this newish technology uh, takes over more and more of the industry. And then second, we need to have software. Uh, we need to have tools that actually enable us uh, to exercise the, the right controls and to put in the right guardrails. Uh, so these two things together, um, and, and then I came across Truera while they were still uh, just out of, uh, of academia. Um, initially as an early client, uh, I was very impressed with their work and then I, I, yeah, I plunged in because I think it's a, it's a fantastic platform both to increase uh, the overall awareness and, 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 um, and, and interest in this topic in the industry, but also um, to provide a very concrete solution to what has become uh, a, a very talked about problem, but not necessarily a problem that people have uh, put their arms around fully. Um, and, you know, obviously the regulators are now taking quite an interest in AI um, and creating new regulations around it. Let's say the European Commission's new regulations new regulation around the use of AI. Will, what is really at the heart of that? Yeah, so you can think about it in a, in a number of different ways, kind of philosophically and then like practically and then technology wise. And so I think philosophically what the regulations are trying to do is to provide guardrails around the ethical use of AI and, and to make sure that people don't adopt AI in a way that is misused or can cause societal harm. Uh, and practically what the European Commission is proposing is, is creating a regulatory structure that uh, it bans some use of AI uh, and, and identifies other uses that they consider to be high risk and imposes regulations on those, and then puts more light regulations or guidelines on uh, other uses of AI or less risky uses of AI. So a particular interest to banks is that credit scoring is regarded as one of those high risk use cases and so if and when the uh, regulation is adopted, there will be uh, an updated um, you know, regulations in, in that particular area. Um, and so from like a more process and technology perspective, what when you, if you are going to be regulated under this law, what you're required to do is put in appropriate data governance and management practices and use what they call in the regulation a quality management system uh, to do things like documenting, explaining, and monitoring of, of AI systems. So actually one way um, we're, we're talking to customers is you can think of a, a, our company, Trera, as be it potentially being able to be this quality AI quality management system to help companies adhere to these kind of regulations and do it that in a you know, more cost-effective way without requiring a large diversion of resources to build you know, your own AI quality management system um, there's going to be, I think, increasingly from us and others, you know, more off-the-shelf software that's going to allow you to do that, um, which I think is especially valuable because the regulations are still involving, so it's a bit of a moving target, and also because the regulations are actually different about across different parts of the world. So the European Commission is doing this, but if, if you're if you're a global entity, then you're going to have different regulations in the U.S. and, and Asia as well. Okay, and, and Shamik, some people have called it the GDPR or General Data Protection Regulation for AI. Um, you know, following on from um, what Will has just said, you know, what impact do you think it will really have on the financial services industry? So, so the direct impact is, is primarily limited to one of the high risk use cases, which is, is credit and credit rating. That's obviously going to impact banks, but it also impacts anybody else that offers 
uh, you know, any kind of credit rating and so credit rating agencies, uh, alternative data providers that include some kind of credit rating, all of that. So that's the direct impact. And in that space, uh, everything that we'll mention in terms of having uh, a set of, um, you know, uh, AI quality management um, um, discipline around that uh, is going to be essential. Uh, that includes being able to show all the things around robustness of the algorithms, about stability, that it won't collapse the, the first time data changes tremendously. Of course, it includes everything you hear about fairness, um, transparency, being able to tell customers why they were denied credit or why their credit rating ended up where it was. All of those things um, are included. Now, arguably, the impact of that on financial services more broadly is not going to be significantly higher because in theory, most financial regulators, actually even in practice, most financial regulators have already taken steps there. In fact, um, um, if you look at the EU draft law itself, they actually ask that the relevant European financial regulations around credit um, incorporate these requirements. So in theory, there should not be an incremental um, ask on, on banks as just as a result of the of the draft EU law. But it is actually in practice, which is, you know, when you have a law which, as you mentioned, it is like GDPR, it has a significant negative um, potential if you if you are in breach in terms of the percentage of your global revenues that could be at risk of fine. Um, and also just the general awareness of this topic is just going to go up tremendously, just like GDPR resulted in a much greater awareness well beyond Europe's boundaries. Uh, around AI. So I, I, I think the indirect impact beyond credit is in some ways going to be higher. And just to take one example, not in banking, but certainly in financial services, um, one of the areas which is not considered high risk, but um, but for, for which the, the EU law requires uh, additional transparency is when you use something like facial recognition or emotional recognition um, with your customers. Now, I, I don't know if you recall, but there was an, an online insurer, I think Lemonade, uh, which got into a little bit of um, trouble in, from a public relations perspective because they went public claiming that, uh, or appearing to claim that their uh, automated claims management software detected whether the human being at the other end of the video was making a fraudulent claim or not. Now, they then clarified that that was not their intent and that is not what they're doing. But that is a great example of something that the EU law requires. It actually requires you to be very transparent when you are using uh, facial recognition and emotion recognition kind of technology uh, in there. So, so direct impact limited to credit, but indirect impact very much GDPR-like in the sense that it's just going to make uh, everybody in the industry, both the regulators and, and the customers, as well as everyone in banking and insurance, uh, much more aware about this topic. Okay. Um, and Shamik, again, you know, do you think the banking industry can shape the regulation at all? How can they do that? And then what are the costs of not doing so? So uh, actually, on this, the banking industry in particular has taken a lead. Uh, as, 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 as as you mentioned, the 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 requirement on that credit use case is actually going to be implemented to, through the banking regulators, not directly from a central EC requirement, but it will be um, through an industry-level regulator, which would be, I guess, the European Central Bank in this case. But actually, not just in Europe, but across the, the United States, Europe, the UK, uh, various parts of Asia, including not least here in Singapore, um, banks and insurers, uh, and a small number of fintechs as well, 
have been uh, quite um, advanced in actually engaging regulators on this topic. Uh, I have to say the regulators have also been fantastic in, in the sense that they have really acknowledged that no one has the complete answer here and they've they've had a have had an openness to to um, consultation that has been very helpful uh, so far so i think actually banks and insurers to a large extent have already taken that role um, to a lesser extent fintechs uh, i've certainly i do have colleagues from fintechs and and uh, neo banks in the in the bank of england forum that i'm a part of um, but more broadly, I, I think um, uh, if I were a fintech, I would pay more attention to this, not just uh, to the fact that I have to adhere to these regulations, but that actually, if we leave it just to the traditional banks and insurers, uh, perhaps the the framing of these requirements will be uh, will be such that uh, the, the, the newer um, challenges might be in some ways disadvantaged. Uh, so that's certainly one area, that, one part of the industry that I think will. You know, for, just to give an example, most most banks have very well established uh, policies and standards around data quality dating back at least to the old Basel II days. Most fintechs would not have had anything like that, so they won't be able to call upon those existing uh, uh, frameworks. Uh, so it is essential, particularly for challengers, to I think engage more. Even for traditional banks and insurers, um, some of the areas that I would certainly suggest um, that there is there is important uh, th that it is important to engage would be around um, the definition of standards. So when one says let's let's ensure fairness, what what kinds of fairness metrics? There are many different variants. What is an acceptable level of discrimination? After all, all financial services is discrimination. Um, and uh, you know when you say transparency what level of transparency to which customers. So getting more concrete around the definition of some of these standards is going to be essential if, if we're going to turn this from something that's, yeah, as you mentioned, GDPR-like in its, in its breadth to something concrete and actionable for, for financial institutions. Excellent. Uh, and then, Will, um, from the sort of tech uh, sector perspective, you know, how is the tech sector, you know, approaching these pending regulation of AI, uh, and then in particular, the uh, EU draft law that's coming up. Yeah, I think kind of the, in the tech sector, or, you know, in Silicon Valley, for example, there, there's some mixed perspectives. So there are some tech companies that are pretty skeptical of all regulatory initiatives because they fear it's going to be a drag on innovation. Um, but I think there's also other views a lot of the big tech companies, for example, Microsoft and Google, have come out supporting regulations, um, but with 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 that caveat, they have have some concerns about innovation as well. And personally, I think that uh, if you look at like the history of regulations, there are definitely um, situations where regulations can actually speed up innovation. A lot of it depends on how the regulations are kind of specifically um, implemented. Um, but the way the regulations can speed up innovation is that they can provide kind of a framework for the adoption of a new technology that removes uncertainty around that technology. And there's a lot of uncertainty about and risks around adoption of AI related to bias and things like that. Um, and so that can be helpful. And then if you can combine that with incentives for adoption, the actual technology, then it can actually accelerate industry growth. And I do think that the 
the European Commission has this opportunity, depending on how they they implement their rules. Um, and you know, an a pretty bright example of this is the electric car industry, where in the United States you had this combination of uh, cafe fuel standards, which said you have to achieve certain um, uh, kind of fuel efficiency standards, and and really electric vehicles were really one of the main ways to do that. They also had tax credits for purchasing of electric cars, and then that was combined with you know uh, tech entrepreneurship, like in the form of Tesla and other companies. And the combination of all these actually enabled the U.S. to become, you know, really the leader in a, in electric vehicles. So it was absolutely helped by uh, kind of this interesting combination of regulation. And I think where we think we can help play a role is um, help uh, in that you can adopt some of these regulations, but reduce the cost and also bring in new innovative technologies along with these regulations. So, um, you know, we view that folks that work with us, they don't have to divert a lot of resources to adhering to these kinds of regulations. And so we can dramatically reduce the cost. And then actually, there's a lot of um, positive effects of adopting technology like us to explain and um, help improve the quality and monitor uh, monitoring of machine learning, which will actually going to make AI more effective and then and speed up the adoption because it's going to rapidly adopt these new technologies that we're kind of packaging in our software. Um, and that will help solve this uh, overall AI quality problem and, and allow people to build more effective AI faster. So that potentially exists. Um, and I think hopefully that's something that, you know, the, the regulators and industry um, and, and tech companies like ourselves can, can all work to achieve. Great, thanks. Um, and then Shamik, I was going to drill down a bit more into the banks and the bank's use of AI. And we talked a little bit already about uh, credit risk modeling, for example. But where would you say that the banks are seeing the most benefits from AI today? Sure. Uh, I mean, I think before I get into the actual areas, I guess the, the overall context of AI use in banking is that it's it's broad but shallow. So that's almost like a caveat across all the answers I'll give. I mean, it is used in a very broad range of areas, with some obviously slightly further ahead than others, and and most a very significant proportion of banks, according to a Bank of England survey, at least two thirds um, are using it beyond just a pilot phase. But to a large extent, they're using it with relatively limited um, uh, scale, and so the the scale of adoption has been relatively smaller. But with that caveat, I think the, the, the area where, where AI has had the maximum uh, early successes has been in the risk and compliance space, um, where it's not just been used to reduce costs and bring about efficiency, but also to improve effectiveness. Uh, in some areas, it's, it's allowing banks to expand the risk envelope in which it operates. So examples uh, include alternative uh, credit monitoring and approval, of course, that we relate, uh, talked about fraud, uh, certainly fraud detection and, and response has been one of the earliest areas. Um, um, trading room surveillance for insider behavior, um, broader you know, conduct monitoring. There, was a, there has been a lot of focus in, in the industry, as you know, uh, around conduct, that monitoring of conduct. Uh, beyond just the trading room surveillance is an important area of interest. Uh, some aspects of the financial crime process, particularly using it to in automate investigation, but not yet enough to automate detection of financial crime. That's still largely done 
using traditional rule-based models. Um, lots around liquidity risk optimization and so on. So overall, I think risk and compliance has certainly been off the blocks first, and there is there are many, many instances of good value coming out of AI. Um, other types of operational automation, I'm sure you would have seen you know, reading through legal contracts or trade finance documents to extract relevant information. Um, to some extent, chatbots and conversational AI, though not as effective, I think, as, it, as the initial hype would have been, but there's been some efficiencies there. Um, there's also improvements in customer experience, I think, particularly as you think about truly digital experiences, for example, not having to uh, you know, do anything at all on paper to open your account. That certainly uses uh, you know, facial recognition and, and other kinds of um, you know, uh, document data extraction, et cetera, which allows you to provide truly um, digital experiences. Um, obviously, marketing in terms of customer retention, cross-sell, upsell efforts, the analytics has always been a big thing there, and machine learning is just turbocharging that. The one area where I'm, I'm interested in, uh, or I'm keenly awaiting more, is, is actually the role of AI in beginning to create new business models, or at least significant more innovations in business models. And there's something, some things happening here. But what I mean by this is, I mean, everything I mentioned before this is in some ways incremental, you know, cost reduction, some revenue increase, um, some increase in effectiveness of risk monitoring. But really for AI to be transformational, um, it needs to enable traditional banks to, in, to get into new business models. And also it needs to be a strong enabler for challenges to, to enter. And there, I think it's not yet... Um, caught on. I mean, some one example could be, you know, as banks attempt to become the platform that under, underpins e-commerce apps, um, you need to be able to, you know, give credit decisions or onboarding decisions in real time using a variety of different data sources. There's no way that's going to happen with traditional credit models or KYC models. Is that going to be something that AI is enabling? Now, and if, if that happens, uh, for example, my previous enabler is, is trying some of that with, with one of its ventures in Indonesia, uh, where you can, you, you're, you're actually the platform underneath a, a major e-commerce provider. If that gets enabled by AI, then that allows a traditional bank to be inventing or to at least entering a brand new uh, business model. And that's an area where I'd like to see more of. I think so far, AI's impact has been more about efficiencies and about more effective, uh, even more effective risk management, not yet sufficiently transformational would be my view. Okay. And you sort of hinted at it at the very beginning of your the preface to your answers, um, which is that AI seems to be being implemented in a lot of different areas, um, maybe with not the results that you would hope or have seen so far. Um, so why do you think that... Um, that the widening um, divider or chasm between AI spend and then its impact, why would that be a concern in banks? Well, the first, as, as, as a continued shareholder in, in a major bank, of course, is that if you're a shareholder, there is a lot of money being spent on data and analytics infrastructure, um, huge amounts of money, both in the technology and in hiring data scientists. And so, of course, not getting value from that will clearly impact uh, the return on investment. But, but leaving the shareholders aside for a moment, though, I think there are two other more serious issues at play. The first is that for some time now, uh, since at least 2017, in, in my own experience, AI has been seen as at least part of the answer to some of the banking industry's biggest problems. I mean, I would say together, perhaps with uh, distributed ledger technology. It's been seen as 
an answer to financial inclusion, to less painful customer experience, less onerous compliance, more effective compliance. I mean, the vast majority, I believe more than 95% of financial crime is not even detected today. Uh, so there were a whole bunch of problems. There was a whole bunch of problems that AI was seen as the answer to, uh, to solving. Those problems didn't go away. If anything, they're getting worse. You know, in many parts of the world, it gets it gets more and more difficult for a small SME, for example, to even open an account. Never mind getting credit, as as the complex interplay of um, financial crime and creditworthiness and all the other issues come in. So if we are going to not have, if 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 AI were to fall in its fail in its promise here. If we end up with another AI winter, this time in the banking industry, we still need a wave in the industry to, to address them. So that's one problem seen, seen from the perspective of big banks. And the second problem is that while most traditional banks might be struggling to ensure successful adoption, at least some of their fintech and big tech competitors, they're starting at the other end. Um, you know, Whether it's AI or more broadly data and automated decision-making, that's where they started. Uh, therefore, their default is, you know, we're just going to go ahead and use this unless there is a there, there is something that we are prevented from doing legally or otherwise. Uh, many of these institutes lack the these these organizations lack the risk management DNA that traditional banks would have had. So it is quite possible that you know if you have the traditional banks not being able to capture value at, at one end, and you have um, a, a relative wild west at the other end where small tech firms or even big tech firms sometimes try and offer um, services on the back of um, potentially unproven technology, or at least technology that, that the big banks are not being able to uh, adopt. Um, I think that will cause another problem that can cause systemic risk, that can cause fairness and other concerns around uh, customer, um, you know, customer welfare. Um, so, so I think both of these challenges, one from the side of the traditional banks and one from the side of the on the fintechs and the tech challenges, uh, they exist. So for, for both of those reasons and for shareholder value, I think we do need to um, address the, the, the widening gap between the spend on AI and the impact that it's been having. Okay, Shamik, and then there's another question I wanted to ask you specifically about banks. Um, another worry is um, that comes from the regulators as well as from others is, is around the idea of the AI black box Right. So that, you know, the AI makes the decision and no one really understands how that decision has um, been made or how it has come to that decision. Um, and then also the inherent bias that can, you know, because all of these models are are based on um, historical data that yeah. have inherent bias within them. So on the one hand, how can banks avoid this AI black box conundrum? But then also, how can they deal with that inherent bias within the data? Yeah, so, so there's perhaps a, a technical answer to this question and a less, uh, and a less technical, a more organizational and cultural answer. I'll start with the cultural one first, because I think that, that has been more important, certainly in my experience. And the first thing is to do, to do is to recognize this challenge, as you've just done in, in what you've just said. So recognizing that when you build decisions, uh, when, you, when you build decision engines on the back of a lot of data, you know, they do run the risk of, being both biased and frankly incorrect. Um, you know, most biased algorithms in the first place are just bad algorithms to begin with. So, so I think investing that effort in demystifying AI, making senior management, frontline staff, customers, everybody more data and AI literate is going to be a big part, along with kind of 
putting in safe guardrails for AI adoption, uh, for example, by including explicit steps to understand and monitor AI quality or, or to set standards around explainability. Uh, but that's the, 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 the softer aspect. I think the, the big part, and this goes back to the first answer I gave on why I left uh, a bank to join a startup, is that there is a technical solution to this. I mean, ultimately, as you rightly pointed out, we're talking about two things, the data that is used to train a model and the, the way in which that model is built and tested. And both of these things, it is possible to use technology to understand whether the data sets that you are used for, using for training is representative or not of the of the population that you want to deploy it towards. So for example, if you are implementing, uh, let's say a facial recognition model in Hong Kong, um, you want to make sure that it's not just uh, trained on East Asians, but also on, on South Asians and Caucasians and, and even Africans, because all of those uh, races have a significant um, representation in Hong Kong as an example. So that would be an example of consciously saying, actually, we need to make sure that the algorithm we have is retrained if it is not already trained on that. Uh, so being aware of what population you are going to apply this model towards and how you can ensure that the training data is representative of that, not just based on races, but on various other characteristics. That's a very important thing that can be done. And the other thing is just being, I mean, the black box concept, it doesn't have to be a black box. Uh, this is exactly where Truera software plays a role. We, we, we and others like us certainly have the technology to enable banks and others to get a very good picture of the key key features that are driving the behavior of a model. So when you know, for example, as one of our clients found out, that actually travel expenses was the key feature that was driving uh, the reduction in, uh, in credit worthiness after COVID came in, as soon as you know, you're able to do something about it. You're able to drop that particular feature and say, no, no, this, this particular aspect of the model doesn't work because clearly that's not an indicator of uh, after COVID of, of credit worthiness. But often the issue is that people are not even aware. So, so to your point, I think um, the black box problem does have a solution. Uh, software such as ours um, provides exactly that kind of a solution to help uh, banks understand the features that drive the, the, important, uh, the, the outcome of the model. Uh, but also I think that the question of bias um, is, is addressable. I won't say it's easily addressable, but the reasons behind bias creeping in or unfair bias creeping in, uh, as long as those are understood, it is possible to, to ensure that there's a right representative data set to train and test the model. Uh, so we do need a mix of those technical and softer cultural and educational solutions. And Will, do you want to add anything? You know, what role can technology play in addressing these tech data AI related risks? Yeah, I think, um, you know, overall, uh, it, it's really overall the tech technology in this area can really help financial services firms adopt AI faster and more effectively. Um, and I think that that's going to bring, you know, huge, huge benefits to, to the industry. Um, and, it, you know, specifically, it can help kind of the different teams and banks, um, you know, be it be more effective during that, uh, you know, the, the AI quality, uh, sorry, the AI development process. So for example, the technology, if you break it down to the next level of detail, helps the first line model development teams build more effective and high quality AI. So you can identify a sequence. Once you can break apart that black box, it allows you to, to identify and pinpoint where you have quality issues with your model. Oftentimes that comes back to the data. 
where you can identify potential parts of the population for which the model will be an ineffective and unreliable. It may be that you just don't have enough data points for a particular subset of your population, let's say like over six, you know, folks that are over six years old. Um, it can also identify potential kind of changes for these teams in the data quality. I think Shamik just gave an example. Another example is uh, when you're, a lot of these systems start uh, trying to use alternative data. Um, that's one of the ways in which you um, address some of these potential uh, financial inclusion challenges in the industry. And also, by the way, address some of the potential bias that may be in historical data. One thing you can use is um, high quality is, is alternative data in combination with machine learning. And that gives you the information you can use to um, provide a different view on the credit worthiness of a, of a customer that's not just tied to that kind of historical information. In fact, in, in many cases, we found that the use of that alternative data can uh, potentially offset biases in, in the historical data. So the technology helps the, fir the first line development teams build these better, uh, higher quality models. Um, it can also be used to help the kind of uh, a, a whole set of different teams like the model risk management and third line teams. And then in general, build greater trust in AI. So, um, you know, removing the black box enables you to provide transparency around what are the key drivers. That, that's useful for, for people adopting a new technology and getting the arms around how it works. It's also very useful in the interactions with customers uh, when you need to tell them, you know, why they didn't get a loan. And, uh, and, and, and we, you know, Shamik also mentioned the, the bias piece. And then it can also help you identify, uh, help model ops teams. So there are these, you know, teams and banks that are there to kind of maintain the quality of, of the models that are, that are in production. And, um, you know, with machine learning models, that's a lot harder because they're much more data dependent. Um, and they and they they're, they're just different drivers that drive machine learning models. So there's a need to kind of help you new new methods of monitoring both the inputs and outputs to these models. So you know, is our model flagging more fewer alerts for fraudulent transactions this month? What if so? What's driving the chain the changes? Um, are we seeing changes in the in the output or the accuracy of the model? what's driving that and then being able to take those insights insights back into uh, the development process um, is, is very helpful and that's one thing in, in particular uh, about machine learning that is is a bit different from traditional models which is that it, it is much more of a, like a continuous development process where your operational data is going to actually be your, your you know today's operational data is going to be tomorrow's training data uh, and so uh, it, it's critically important to have both this ability to evaluate your models and then monitor the models and make that kind of a, a single process. And, and that technology, I think ultimately, if, if people adopt these kinds of technologies, it's gonna help banks build up a strategic advantage in uh, machine learning. I think you don't get a, uh, every, every bank is looking for how can they build up a sustainable competitive advantage. And I think sometimes there's a sense that, you know, the technology around the platform for building the models can be a source of that advantage. I don't actually think that that's the case. The way you build up a sustainable competitive advantage in AI is by having better data and then iteratively building better and better models. It's all about essentially data 
and iterative development. And the faster you can make those iterations, the more of a competitive advantage uh, you're going to have. And technology can help you do that, help you um, uh, get better data and, and speed up those, those, those cycles and iterations on your model development. Excellent. Well, thanks, Well, I, I have two more sort of quick fire questions, one for each of you. Uh, Shamik, you know, should all banks establish AI ethics committees? Uh, I'm going to hedge on this. Not sure. I think they certainly need to uh, introduce data ethics committees because there are, there are questions about what data can we use versus what data should we use. I think for AI, it's much more important to to just focus on the things we've just been talking about. Uh, you know, an unethical or unfair AI system is almost certainly, first and foremost, a bad AI system. So if we focus more on the basics around being transparent, ensuring good quality data, monitoring the models well, et cetera, that's the work that is needed. Uh, I'm not sure an ethics committee will, will necessarily help with that, although it can provide some higher level guidelines. But on data ethics more broadly, banks and particularly perhaps insurers, um, they do need some kind of framework that says, you know, we know we can use X, Y, and Z, but should we use X, Y, and Z data? Certainly that that deserves that. Great, thanks. And then, Will, um, there's a lot of talk, and obviously AI is not the panacea for everything, um, but there has been a lot of talk about AI helping to democratize the financial services industry. What is your opinion on that? Yeah, I think it absolutely can do that. I think... You're already seeing this in terms of from the end consumer being able to um, enable financial services to be uh, more available to a broader set of people. Um, you know, enabling financial services firms to provide more credit to the kind of unbanked um, set of consumers or folks with short credit history. So that's one of the things that I think Standard Chartered is is being a pioneer pioneer in, and that we're helping them. Uh, in that area. I think the other way of thinking about democratizing the industry is about competition. Um, and you've already saw a lot of increased competition in banking from the first internet wave. But I think AI is going to accelerate that. Uh, and you're seeing that with a, you know, a significant rise in new entrants or new fintech entrants that are using AI as a basis to compete. And I think this will help uh, lead to you know, um, more services and, and outreach, but also better terms on kind of existing, you know, products. And, and we see this, you know, we're helping both um, the existing banks, you know, adopt AI kind of faster and, and, and introduce latest technologies. We're also working with fintechs where the challenge is a little bit different there. There, there's a need to adopt some of the kind of the traditional model risk management best practices and regulatory compliance. Um, that traditional banks have developed over time, but are the, that are new, um, you know, for these kind of new entrants. Um, so, but I think the combination of, of kind of traditional banks uh, adopting AI faster and, and new entrants that are using AI uh, is, is only going to be good for the industry and, and for the consumers of the industry, ultimately. Excellent. Shamik, Will, thank you so much for joining me for this podcast series and for your insights. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.